Hey everybody, this is Brian coming at you from late 2022. You're about to listen to one of the original episodes of the Internet History Podcast, a project I started way back in 2014. It eventually became a book called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone, written by me, but these are the original chapters and interviews I did for that book. So here you have all the original oral history interviews, the original players of the internet era in their own words. You'll get hours more detail and stories here than I was able to even fit in the book. If you like this podcast, buy the book, but also the podcast stand on their own. Almost 300 hours of original source material of internet history. They've been downloaded about 3 million times over the years. And if you like what you hear here, search and subscribe to what I do today, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, a daily tech news podcast I've been doing since 2018. Basically, the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast is the history of the internet every day in real time. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is a special feature episode because today, October 27th, 2014, is the 20th anniversary of the first banner ads on the Internet. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, this episode is going to feature bits and pieces of interviews you might already have listened to. But there are some new interviews as well, and they've all been edited together to tell the story in a comprehensive way. If you're new to this podcast, please enjoy and know there is plenty more where this came from, plenty more internet history as well as interviews with internet pioneers, so please subscribe to the Internet History Podcast to hear everything. If you look at the show notes for this episode right there on your screen or smartphone, you'll see a link that says the first banner ad. Click on that. Now you see it. Have you ever clicked your mouse right here? You will. Doesn't seem like much, but in folk history, this has gone down as the first ever banner ad on the internet. Of course, it's not technically the first banner ad. There was no one first banner ad. Instead, There were around 12 or 14, which all went live 20 years ago today, when the website Hotwired.com first launched on the web. This is the story of the world's first banner ad, or ads. It may not seem like something to celebrate, but think about this. Basically, the majority of the web and the internet are subsidized by ads. The net as we know it today would not exist without ads. There would be no Google search, 
no Gmail, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Reddit, no any website that you can basically use for free, without advertising, that is. Sure, there are huge sections of the internet that function on a different revenue model. There's this Amazon, eBay, iTunes, and other things like that that come to mind, but the vast majority of the online world we love and use every single day is underpinned by an economic infrastructure of advertising. This is the story of how that came to pass by the people who were there for the very first banner. But first, we do need to start out by stipulating that the first advertising on the internet did not take place on October 27th, 1994, but long before it. The early internet, going back to the days of DARPA and ARPANET, had specific user guidelines which outlawed marketing activities on the internet. In fact, commerce of any kind was verboten until 1994. These guidelines, of course, could not stop enterprising persons from trying to promote themselves on this new medium. And so, according to several sources, the first ad would probably have to be the first spam email, which was sent on May 3rd, 1978, when Gary Thurick, a marketing manager at DEC, the Digital Equipment Corporation, sent a mass email to around 400 users, which he was able to collect from the ARPANET directory, alerting them to the scheduled demonstration of a new DEC product. You can read the entire first spam email. I've linked to it again in the show notes. There were other early pioneers in the proto-online space that tried to make experiments with marketing. From its inception, Prodigy's online service had banner ads running at the bottom of every screen it delivered to its early dial-up users. They weren't banner ads as we think of them today, but they were similar in size and similar in purpose. In April of 1994, two lawyers from Arizona caused controversy by spamming 5,000 Usenet newsgroups with a message offering their services helping aliens to get green cards. And credit for the first true linked, clickable, paid advertisement on the World Wide Web goes to a website called the Global Network Navigator, or GNN, which in 1993 sold a clickable ad to a Silicon Valley law firm named Heller, Ehrman, White, and McCullough. So that's probably the first true ad on the internet. But it wasn't a banner ad, more of just a text link that someone paid for. The website that would truly bring advertising to the web in the way that we think of it today would be Hotwired, the digital publication launched by Wired Magazine. Many people like to think retroactively that Wired Magazine was the herald of the web and the internet era, but in fact, Wired launched and found great success several years before the internet and the web rose to mainstream prominence. Wired's original manifesto centered around a cultural and social revolution that would be brought about by digital technology, but it had no more insight than anyone else at the time what form that revolution would actually take. And so, for example, if you look at the first dozen or so issues of Wired magazine, references to the internet and the web especially were few and far between. 
1994, however, the internet was having its moment, and so it was now clear that if the revolution that Wired magazine was promising was happening anywhere, it was happening on the web. Wired magazine co-founders Louis Rossetto and Jane Metcalf were thus under pressure to jump their magazine onto the web bandwagon. Several of the younger Wired staffers, especially, were web true believers, and they felt that rather than just cover the revolution, Wired should join it. Rossetto consented to create a web property with the stipulation that it not just be an experiment. The saga of Wired Magazine's founding and funding had been a long and arduous one, and the magazine had only recently achieved financial breathing room thanks to an infusion of cash from Condé Nast. Thus, Rossetto was not eager to start yet another enterprise that would bleed cash for years as the magazine had so recently done. So Rossetto insisted that from day one, whatever web enterprise was created had to contribute meaningfully, in terms of revenue, to its parent property. Rossetto was happy to give the web a try, but only if he could make it pay. Thus, unlike other early web startups that would soon flood Silicon Valley, the site that would become hotwired would not have the luxury of burning through cash for months or even years before finding its footing. Other early media properties like Time Inc.'s Pathfinder, Microsoft's Slate.com, and Salon.com would each experiment with subscriptions and paywalls of various sorts in order to generate revenue. But Wired readers were already paying a subscription for the magazine, of course. Thus, it made no sense to charge Wired subscribers for a second, somewhat supplemental title. And so, when in early 1994, Rossetto recruited a former investment banker named Andrew Anker to write a business plan for the project that would be hotwired, Anker settled upon the only logical revenue stream that he could see for the new project, advertising. Andrew Anker was a former partner at the boutique San Francisco investment firm Sterling Payo and had been instrumental in helping Wired raise money for its founding. At the time, Anker was the chief technology officer of Wired, and he would go on to become the CEO of Wired Ventures, the separate corporate umbrella that Hotwired would launch under. Here's Andrew Anker. What happened was my mandate as a business plan builder um, was we're building a business here. We're not building a, a project. We're not building a, a product. Uh, we're building a business. Um, what happened was in January of 1994, Wired got its first real round of money. It was $3.5 million from Condé Nast. Um, and it was a very simple sign new house, loved what was going on, wrote a check. And, and it was all about the magazine. You know, he, he didn't know anything about that. I, I remember at one point around then, I, so I sat down at my desk and I took him through the Internet. I believe that was the first time he'd ever seen a, a web browser or anything, you know, Internet related. Um, and so, so Wired actually did have some money, but that didn't mean, you know, go, go spend. And this is, you know, as you can imagine, well before internet bubbles and anything like that, the, there was no VCs, there was no nothing that were, you know, running around trying to give us large amounts of money. So, so we really lived in a world where three and a half million was all we ever had. 
Um, and so, uh, so it was reticence is the wrong word um, uh, to, to build the, the company. It was um, he was not going to do it unless it was done properly as a full fledged business effort. I often say that a lot of the things that we did uh, and that we're credited for were really not brilliant decisions. They were constraints that we had no choice. You know, if I'm writing a business plan in March of 94 for an online business that has to make money, and this is pre-SSL, you know, Netscape uh, was created April 1st. Um, so actually the month after I wrote my business plan for Hotwire. Um, and they didn't really launch a browser that was sort of stable and usable until around the same time that we were launching Hotwired in, in September, October of 94. And SSL was, I think, a year or two later. So, so there was no credit cards. There was no, no other way to, to make money but getting advertisers to pay. Wired Magazine's recent success on the newsstand meant that the new website could, however call upon the mothership's existing relationship with advertisers. And the pitch was simple. Come along for the ride as we try to pioneer this new medium. Again, Andrew Anker. We had a, a, I don't remember the exact size, but a relatively small ad sales force at the magazine. We knew we were going to leverage that. Um, and uh, AT&T, which had been a big ad uh, advertiser in Wired Magazine, had already said, we hear you're doing something online, we're in. Um, you know, so that, that sort of now famous, you're going to click on this. I forget the exact wording, but you know, you will click on this thing ad, um, that AT&T. So AT&T essentially, I think we, we did the business plan in March, I think by April or May, Jane Metcalf, you know, who, who led a lot of the ad sales efforts had already gotten a call from AT&T saying we're in. Um, and so, you know, Jane came to me and said, great, what are they in for? You know, what what are we going to charge them? What are they, what are we going to sell them? The Hotwired Pioneers had very little in the way of templates or examples to draw from for inspiration, because there literally weren't many other web publications out there at that point, and none, certainly, that were operating at the scale that Hotwired aspired to. In addition, little of the digital publishing technologies we are used to today were available at the time. So Hotwired made things up as it went along, occasionally borrowing from its print roots. Joe McCambly was a creative executive at an agency called Modem Media. One of his big clients was AT&T. Joe would go on to work at Digitas, AOL, and found the Wonder Factory. Here's Joe McCambly. You know, I, I think in hindsight, we, we talk about those days as if we had this grand plan and we were we were executing flawlessly, but but a lot of it kind of happened accidentally and, and serendipitously. What made the brainstorming hard is that we didn't really know anything. We didn't know, you know, what's the color palette? What's the case size that's allowed for the banner? Where, where will it be placed on the page? What will the size of the banner be? Um, you know, what will it link to? Where, when, if it does link to something, where will everything be stored? What will it actually link to? Because there wasn't much to link to at the time. So it was, we, we started the project with, with you know, kind of like the classic white page of paper with nothing on it. And, um, you know, through through conversations with AT&T and with Wired, and I know Organic was pretty heavily involved at the time with kind of being instrumental in determining um, what the structure of the pages would be and the case size and, and, and some of those uh, parameters. <clears throat> we just talked it through and, and kind of made it up as we went along. Andrew Anker. 
we had a very, very sort of linear approach at that point. There was no ad servers. You know, we were writing everything ourselves, including the content. You know, there's no CMS. There's no ad servers. There was barely a, a web server at that point. And Brian Bellendorf, who uh, helped get Apache going, was our engineer. So he was sort of simultaneously writing the code for Hotwired and helping the Apache project give us a stable web server. What we decided to do was just quite simply sell one advertisement against one content section. And $10,000 was a round number that made the numbers work. So we, we tried it and, you know, everybody sort of seemed to buy it. Um, and so it, at that point, it just became a, a sort of an editorial calendar kind of approach where we said, okay, we have this art site, we have this music site, we have this news site, we have this link site, and we tried to match as much as possible advertisers to, set, to sections. You know, so when I was talking to um, the people at, for instance, Mesner Viteri, uh, which was an ad agency back then that, amongst other things, had Volvo as a client. They said, Volvo is very interested. We said, great. We have this section called On the Road, where we were going to send a reporter to go do something you know, on the road and send in reports. Um, one of the most famous ones was he got into the Wienermobile, the, the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, and went across country filing you know, sort of broadsides from the road. Um, and so we had a section called On the Road, and it was sponsored by, um, uh, by, by Volvo. Um, you know, and we just one by one, we sort of matched up an advertiser too. So there was no ad server. If you went to that section on the road, you saw the Volvo ad. If you hit reload, you saw the same Volvo ad. And, um, and it was sort of that simple at that point. There was, there was really no, no idea of, uh, targeting. As the ad sales and the technical development of the site itself went on, Word went out to advertising agencies that a new type of creative was being developed at Hotwired. Here's Joe McCambly. We there, there was a big buzz at, at Modem that um, MCI, you know, the, the the web had already started. The Netscape browser launched, and there were rumors going around that uh, MCI was going to be doing some sort of uh, an amazing digital experience, and nobody knew what it was, but there were just kind of rumors floating around. Um, when you know we we brought that news to AT and T and and that started circulating around the hallways and and AT and T was trying to figure out what their response would be, and then about this time um, we we also started hearing rumors of of Wired magazine launching an, an online version and that there was going to be sponsorship involved, so there was just kind of this perfect storm of events that um, created a, a sense of urgency around we've got to be doing something on on Hot Wired magazine when it launches um, kind of got to beat MCI to the punch and uh, it's got to be good. So we, we were finally uh, given an approved uh, budget to work on an, an ad for the, the launch of Hotwired magazine. At the time, as you can imagine, there weren't a lot of people that even knew HTML. So we, we, we did a search and we, um, we found a company in Westport, Connecticut named Tangent Design. It was run by a guy named Brent, Brent Hood. And he had a, a, a technology leader that was working on the IBM business named um, Otto Timmons, just great guys. And um, Otto had been doing some work with a, a young kid that just came out of the M MIT Media Lab named Craig Kanerick, Craig Kanerick, who eventually went on to found Razorfish. But at, at the time, I think, um, I, I, honestly, I think Craig was living on Otto's sofa or somebody's sofa at the time. I just, I just remember thinking that he was this brilliant kid that really understood technology very, very well. Um, and I was wondering why he wasn't already rich. At the time, Craig Kanerick was a young multimedia designer working with various agencies. He would eventually create the Blue Dot, which is credited with being the first animated website. 
And for the Hotwired project, Canark would be the one who would design the AT&T ad, the one that is featured on the blog post for this episode. Canark, as was mentioned, would later go on to found Razorfish, one of the first interactive web agencies. Here's Craig. Somewhere in the in the fall or the late summer of 94, they got a call over at Tangent from a company down the street from Moda Media explaining that Wired Magazine was going to launch a new website called Hotwired and that on that site there were going to be ads from companies in the same way that you know, magazines had print ads, then quite figure out exactly what the details were. But one of Moda Media's clients, AT&T, had either heard that MCI Friends and Family was having an ad, or I don't really remember the exact circumstances around the media buy, but that they had bought an ad for AT&T and they wanted to work with us to try and create this ad for AT&T that was going to go on the Wired website when it launched in late October 94. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Canerick's boss at Tangent was Otto Timmons, a VP at the firm. Tangent had recently finished work on designing IBM's first consumer website. Today, Otto is a principal at 3GR in Los Angeles. Otto Timmons. We originally we approached IBM to uh, to do their banner ad, but uh, their agency Ogilvy and Mather had uh, uh, had already gotten that business by contract. A, a week, eight days before Hotwired launched was supposed to launch. Um, Doug Ehlers from Moda Media called us and said, "Boy, have I got a great opportunity for you." And I was like, yeah, well, you know, we, we'd love to work with you. Uh, we just met Doug and his uh, and the people over there just a couple of weeks earlier. Um, and uh, they were pretty much right down the street. And and he said, well, we have this. Um, Doug said we have this project for AT&T. It's a banner ad and uh, three or four pages that are uh, for the Hotwired launch. And, uh, you know, we don't have the internal resources to do it. And we would just love to give it to you. You can do whatever you like. Um, and uh, uh, I thought, wow, that's fantastic. And I, I said, when's it due? And he goes, uh, it's due in seven days. We actually finished the IBM website, slept for a day, and then started working on the uh, AT&T ad for Hotwired. Craig Kanerick. I happen to know the chief technology guy over at Wired at the time, a guy named Brian Bellendorf. 
And Brian and I had known each other uh, electronically for a long time and, and had actually collaborated on a software project a couple of years earlier. And, you know, he was he was sort of sharing his time between Wired, uh, the digital side of Wired, and a digital agency, Organic, that had opened up in the wake of all of this in the same building as wired and and i don't know the exact circumstances around that either but they were collaborating a lot on these projects uh, on this project in particular i know organic did a bunch of of these ads as well jonathan nelson was the co-founder of organic which as mentioned was one of the first interactive digital marketing and design agencies in existence and happened to be one floor above wired magazine's offices Organic would produce roughly half of the dozen or so campaigns that would launch with Hotwired. Today, Jonathan Nelson is the CEO of Omnicom Digital, the digital arm of the massive Omnicom advertising firm. Jonathan Nelson. What Hotwired was doing was really the first internet media company where they were saying, look, we're going to put up content and it will be you know, sponsored by you or it'll be you know, the advertising is going to pay for it. So what are we going to sell you instead of a print ad or a 30 second spot? We're going to sell you space on a web page and then you can put your banner there and here's the format. And so once, once that Rick sold that to at t we were the guys that actually did everything else. There were very few people that even knew how to build a website at that time. So we, uh, we just got it done. Otto Timmons. We, we, we didn't have anything to go on. I mean, and I asked, uh, that was the, sort of the second phone call with, with Doug was, so what are we selling? What's the, you know, the ad concept? And, and he said, well, we don't have that either. You know, so you can, you can really do whatever you want. It's a blank page. And um, so we kind of made it up as we went along. At the same time as the conceptual and technical details were being hammered out, the very first web advertising sales force was being assembled to line up the brands that would join Hotwired in this first web experiment. Rick Boyce was recruited to Hotwired to form this first ever web ad sales team. Brought on mere weeks before the launch, Boyce had to work quickly, but found that there were more than a few brands that were eager to be on the cutting edge. Today, Boyce is head of corporate sales at the digital advertising company Quantcast. Here's Rick Boyce. So to me, as I started to see Mosaic uh, in 1994 and started to comprehend the potential of the World Wide Web, I saw it very clearly as a very important new medium being born. And to be able to join a new medium at its birth, I felt like, boy, that puts me in the same league as, as the folks who joined television in the early days you know, newspaper, radio, et cetera. And so I saw this being that important of a movement and something I wanted to be a part of. I had no idea um, from a technical perspective uh, how any of it worked or why, but was confident that we would uh, figure that out as we, get, as we went along. 
I came in to be the director of sales for Hotwired, and we had in place a pretty extensive uh, network of Wired magazine salespeople. And this included a lot of folks that you've you've heard of, and certainly um, have become uh, you know famous in the digital media industry. People like Doug Weaver, people like Mitchell Crouch, uh, people like Bill Peck. Um, we're all on the Wired sales team, and we're presenting not only Wired, but the Hot Wired opportunity to their clients as well. Andrew Anker. We made no commitments because we just, quite frankly, had no idea what to commit to, and it was just easier. Um, it was easier just to be honest with people and say, you know, we're not going to give you any kind of pricing guarantees. We're not going to give you anything. You're doing this because you want a seat at the table. You're going to be, you know, you got special uh, announcements and, you know, we did some cross promotion in Wire Magazine. Um, you know, so they were they were doing it because they wanted to be part of the club of pioneering this new medium. Uh, and, you know, we all knew the money would be wrong. We didn't know in which direction, but we knew we'd figure it out later. Rick Boyce. Yeah, and I think when I joined, we had maybe three or four advertisers committed, and uh, and then the next came in in pretty rapid succession after that. And um, you know, one one um, one gentleman, um, you know, Stephen Comfort, again, someone who's who's pretty well known in the digital media circles. He was at an agency uh, called Mesner Viteri at the time, and he actually placed four campaigns uh, with Hotwire directly. He was the media planner. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, and he brought four on, and that was for um, two MCI business units, Club Med, and also Volvo. So I'd mentioned the the four that Stephen Comfort um, brought in, um, you know, as when he was a media planner at uh, at Mesner. By the way, we hired him shortly thereafter, and he joined our sales team as well. Um, but he brought in those four. Um, Moda Media brought in two, and that was the second AT&T division, and also Zima, which you might remember as a Coors brand. That was kind of a a new age. Um, um, beverage uh, back in the time, an alcoholic beverage. I do um, remember, yes. Zima, remember that? Yep, um, yep. We also um, we had a campaign from um, IBM that was really beautifully done. That came out of Ogilvy in New York. Um, IBM's campaign was, was absolutely stunning. It's called Digital Alchemy was the name of the campaign. And um, let's see, we had... Um, uh, a company called the Internet Shopping Network, which was later acquired by the Home Shopping Network. So ISN uh, was an early advertiser. We had a uh, another West Coast company um, called Metricom, which was setting up um, basically wireless LANs, um, kind of in the pre-Wi-Fi days. And the technology um, no longer exists, but they were uh, they were an early sponsor. And um, a number of others. Yeah, I'd have to think through um, all of them. I have the whole list somewhere. I just don't have them all off the top of my head right now. But, but in every case, um, you know, early adopters, companies that really wanted to be, you know, be a part of and, and were really committed to the future. Yeah, we sold them as sponsorships, and they were, if memory serves, 12 weeks, $30,000. That was the launch price. We raised it um, in 1995. Um, but it was 12 weeks for uh, $30,000, and there were no no delivery guarantees um, or any kind of commitment about clicks. But um, but that advertiser would own that presence persistently for that entire 12-week period. Again, everything being produced on this project was basically brand new. There wasn't any previous model to draw from, so Everything was sort of being made up as the teams went along. That included things like schematics, design issues, and other problems like this, which had to be solved on an ad hoc basis. Here's Andrew Anker again. 
the size of the ad um, was a very, again, pragmatic decision. At that point, most monitors were 13 inches, sort of on the order of 640 by 480. Color was not something you could assume. Um, black and white was still not unusual. Um, and so when we were designing the first page, we took a sort of one-third, one-third, one-third approach. One-third for the advertisement, one-third for the, the, the masthead or the, you know, the logo of the, the section that you were on, and then one-third the beginning of the text. So you could actually see, see your ad, see what section you were on, and then start to have a little bit of a pull into the story itself. Rick Boyce. Those ads were um, were hardwired or, or hard coded rather to the pages, and so there was we didn't have an ad server yet. We built one uh, later, but at that time there was not a, a concept of an ad server, at least not yet. So they were they were just an, an image file that was hard coded to that page. And one thing um, <clears throat> that I think we also tend to forget too, as history's gone on, um, they were they were all um, graphical image files. So these were all static GIFs. There were no animations at the time. There was no way to animate a GIF, so every single ad truly was, um, you know, a static um, picture. Joe McCamley. Well, yeah, I mean, I, re I remember having a, a big debate, and we probably argued for an hour or so about whether or not it should even be a color ad. You know, because mm -hmm. we, we knew we could make it smaller if it were black and white. We knew that there was a large percentage of people out there that only had black and white monitors anyway. Craig Kanerick. The tech you know, and the, and the sort of specifications about where these things would appear and how big they were, were, were all sort of juggled about up until, you know, almost the very end. The, the size of the ad was, was really created because of the size of the browser at the time and, you know, the scroll bars on the side and people just trying to figure out exactly what would fit. If I remember correctly... Uh, you know, it was uh, uh, Matthew Nelson who helped start Organic with his brother Jonathan. And he worked with Barbara Coor and Rick Boyce, and they were really creating the specifications. You know, what they said was, okay, you can, you know, we'll, we'll make this, this ad. It'll sort of run the full width of the screen, and you'll get an image, and then that image can be linked to something. And they, you know, were designing for Mosaic and I believe maybe an early version of Netscape at the time. And they started to, you know, play around with it and realize that somewhere around 460 by 60 was the right number. But then the browsers at the time automatically put a two pixel uh, blue box around those ads. Mm -hmm. So they shrunk it down to 456 by 56. Jonathan Nelson. Well, it's hard to imagine this because web pages have become relatively sophisticated compared to that era. But at that time, you, you couldn't actually even center a banner, I don't think. I think everything was flush left. So you had sort of a margin on the left and then everything was just jammed up against it. And then you would make the banners, you know, only two or three different colors. And you couldn't have um, complex graphics in them because everybody was on modems at the time. So it, uh, bandwidth was extremely limited. Rick Boyce. So one of the things that, that the slow, the slow connections, um, created, and I think this is, this is an unfortunate, uh, side effect of the slow connections at the time was that the ad units were pretty small. And I do believe 
that had broadband been much more persistent in 1994 than it was, that the the initial ad units that that were launched would have been would have been more significant in size. And and I can tell you for sure that they were small on purpose, and they were small to make sure that the file sizes were small and that those pages would load as quickly as possible over a modem. Joe McCambly. And and honestly, um, once we determined what the size of the banner was going to be, we, we had more conversations around, you know, traditional billboard advertising and, you know, what does it take to make a, a billboard successful? You know, you've got to keep, try to keep your language down to, to seven words. You've, you've got to, you've got to try to have some sort of a visual that will stand out and capture people's attention. You've got to offer some sort of a benefit. I think we broke some of those rules, but, but yeah, I think for me anyway, um, having grown up in advertising and I, and I think of all the people, on our side of the room that was doing the work on this banner. I was the one that came from traditional advertising. I thought more in terms of, of, a, of a billboard. There was a fair amount of hand-holding involved because the medium itself was brand new, but also because a lot of the brands that were getting involved weren't sure what these new ads were supposed to do exactly. For example, a web ad could be clicked on, but once clicked, where were the users going to go? Many perhaps most of the brands who had signed on to be sponsors didn't even have websites at this point. So Hotwired solved this problem by building landing pages or websites for them. Here's Andrew Anker. We actually mandated that um, those ads clicked to pages on our site um, because we just didn't want to have any kind of, excuse me, we didn't want to have any kind of uh, breakdown in experience. So the way it worked, for your $10,000, you got that ad on the top of the page, and then you got three other pages on our site. And um, from there, you could link off to your own site. You could do whatever. Um, And there were, I don't remember offhand who, but there were definitely advertisers who had nothing but the sort of microsite on Hotwired um, that we provided. Rick Boyce. The tough part became one thing. We saw this happen um, in many, many instances. But the challenge became for some of these advertisers was that after they'd made the commitment to buy the space on Hotwired, they really weren't sure where that was going to link to. And so so it's kind of easy to make the media buy, but then making sure that there's actually a, a destination and a, and a logical place to um, you know deposit those visitors who choose to uh, click on the banner. Because um, who would have who would had uh, who what brand would have had a website? at this point. Yeah, exactly. Very few did. And, and in the cases like an IBM, I mentioned IBM earlier, they're a good example. You know, IBM certainly had a comprehensive website in 1994, but it was, it was designed for a much different purpose. It wasn't consumer facing per se, but, but had, you know, B2B um, type purposes and, and, um, and otherwise. So that was meant to, you know, help serve their customers and also to communicate, you know, within, within the company itself. Craig Kanerick. Not only were there no, not a lot of really big corporate websites, um, at the time there was really a debate whether a corporate website would actually be the thing that people wanted. I mean, I remember people saying, like, who wants to go to, you know, like, who would want to go to a website with Pampers where they're just going to talk about diapers all the time? What, what, What could they possibly say about it that would be interesting? So there was a lot of debate about where those things would go. You know, I think Zima had a corporate website. They were one of the original advertisers. Um, you know, it was Zima, AT&T, Sprint, Timex, as I mentioned, MCI, I think Volvo. 
and I think a modem company called Zircom. Joe McCambly. Yeah, really, nobody had a site then except maybe Zima. I think I think they launched their site in in conjunction with those ads running so that they they could link to the the website. Yeah, so there there really was no site to link to. Again, Craig Canerick. You know, it's it, it's interesting because there really was no one single first banner ad. There were actually, depending upon how you count, there were six or eight or fourteen. There were there were a bunch of them that were all sold at the same time. And when Wired went live at the end of October of '94, it went live with a handful of ads all at the same time. Indeed. Because all of the ads launch simultaneously, there's no real one true first ad. But in retrospect, it's fun to think of the AT&T ad as the de facto first banner ad because it makes for a better story. For one thing, there was the copy, daring the first web users to click here. That's cheeky and prescient. Also, since all the banner ads launch simultaneously anyway, why not give the credit to AT&T? The overall narrative it fits is just so perfect. It's weird to think of it this way, but in 1994, AT&T was sort of a fledgling brand. The Bell system had only been broken up 10 years previously, in 1984, and so AT&T was in what, for it, was an interesting new position— at least when it came to branding and advertising. It was suddenly forced to compete with upstart rivals like Sprint and MCI for the hearts and minds of consumers. The reach-out-and-touch-someone ads of the late Bell era had evolved into a new nationwide campaign that would be called the You Will campaign. You may remember the campaign because it was ubiquitous in the early 90s. Narrated by Tom Selleck and directed by David Fincher, the eventual film director, the ads moved AT&T's branding away from personal connection and towards a futuristic utopian world where reaching out and touching someone was a ubiquitous and magical occurrence. All the ads had the convention of, have you ever done X, followed by the assurance that you will. And the company that will bring it to you is AT&T. So if, for example, one ad had a mother, Jenna Elfman actually, tucking her children in via a video call. Have you ever tucked your baby in from a phone booth? You will. And another showed in-car GPS navigation, pretty much as it exists today. Have you ever crossed the country without stopping for directions? You will. I have uh, the YouTube clips of all of the ads, again, on the website in the uh, post for this episode. But also, here I'm going to give you a little audio sample of what the ads sounded like. Again, if you were alive and watching TV in the 90s, this is probably burned into your brain because they played basically every five minutes. Have you ever borrowed a book from thousands of miles away across the country without stopping for directions or sent someone a fax from the beach you will and the company that'll bring it to you AT&T 
Here's Craig Kanarick speaking about these You Will ads. And they showed this sort of Jetsons future of the world. Uh, you know, many, many, if not all of those have come true. Right. But at the time, it was really this sort of fantasy about how the future is going to be really amazing. Joe McCambly. You know, we weren't talking in terms of integrated advertising at the time. Nobody was. But but we we knew that AT&T was spending hundreds of millions of dollars on the You Will campaign. There was incredibly high awareness of the campaign. So we wanted to take advantage of that. You know, we figured if we only have seven words on this banner or, or whatever, how many of our words it turned out, we, we had to refer to something that people would immediately recognize as something good. We had a, a client at AT&T was a guy named Bill Clausen. And... Um, in, in, in the months leading up to the, the creation of the first banner, we were we were doing a pretty important project with him, and, and basically it was a was a client server network. We, we distributed twenty thousand laptops to AT and T sales reps so that they could get all their sales materials off of a centralized server, completely updated in real time. Um, and, and the process of that that's not the internet what I just described, but it was enough like the internet that this guy had a pretty high awareness of, of what the web was going to be capable of. Bill Clausen was an advertising and communications manager at AT&T. And at the time, he was pushing hard to move AT&T into new interactive technologies for marketing and advertising purposes. Part of that remit found him working with Modem Media on various initiatives. Here's Bill Clausen. We were having a very difficult time competing on price. Uh, MCI was was poking at us on price, and we were doing everything to you know play to our strength. Was you know think of all the th- wonderful things that we're helping to bring to you. You know you know the you know from the whole reach out and touch the the, the emotional appeal of that that we help connect you with the people you want to talk to, and then into the you will campaign, which is all about you know. We're, we're here for you now. You know exactly what we do for you now. But guess what? We're also helping to bring these new, positive, futuristic things to life for you that will help make your life even more incredible. A lot of Bill's efforts involved getting AT&T to experiment with advertising online, especially with the early online services like AOL, CompuServe, and Prodigy. But he was meeting with the age-old brick wall of corporate inertia, Bill Clausen. It, it's the typical big company, very established, don't rock the boat, we'll get to it type of thing. Everything is a pushback to, you know, do the business case, you know, try to figure out how you're going to measure this thing. Is it, you know, is it really worth carving any t- any money out of our budgets? L- lots of... Um, Obviously, all the, anyone who's ever championed anything in a big company will all understand the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into something like that when you firmly know that it's the right thing to do, uh, but you have to convince the establishment that, it, that they should do it. But, again, Bill Clausen. But competition can be good, right? So what happens is um, we now find out we 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 knew that something was happening on the internet that the the the, the rumblings there's something there uh, again it's it's still not as 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 you know important as these 
proprietary services like AOL. AOL was definitely shaping up to us to be the primary uh, interactive venue that we might uh, really get into. Um, and then all of a sudden we hear, and, 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 and to their credit, the folks at Modem uh, told me that there's a threat from MCI. There's this, there's this property called Hotwired uh, that is about to, for the first time ever, allow advertisers to advertise. And their, their booking space, um, still trying to figure out exactly what that advertising is going to be, um, but it looks like MCI is going to be there. That's all we had to hear. That's all I had to hear. So the, all the pushback that I ever had about business case, all the pushback I ever had about all, all the other things that the gauntlets you have to go through, this changed everything. Uh, once it was explained to the powers that be what was going on, I got the green light to go. Unfortunately, by the time we found out about all this, it didn't give us a lot of time. I, I you know, less than a week, a week. Enter the creatives like Joe McCambly and Craig Kanarek. Here's Joe McCambly. He, he placed an enormous amount of trust in us. Um, th there wasn't a lot known about the web. Um, there, there weren't a lot of facts we could give him. And, and I think his direction was, t it, to the extent that you can, tie it into this campaign that we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on. And um, if, if you're going to link to people, make sure you link to people that our brand wants to be associated with. So there, there were some pretty heavy approval processes that had to happen at, at two in the morning where we were sharing graphics with him so that he could approve this stuff. Um, but mostly he, he put, placed a lot of trust in us. Bill Clausen. Uh, full credit to Joe as the, 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 the leader of the ship here. He, he took it and worked crazy hours to make this happen. I still remember being with them up until I think it was probably like two or three in the morning one night. It was it was nuts. It was crazy stuff. Joe McCambly. Strategically, what we were trying to do, we 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 would honestly we would have so many late night conversations with the brand people at AT and T. Literally two in the morning for months prior to this, where we were just talking about the web and what it could mean and what it could mean for communications and what it would mean for people. There was a lot of idealism. There was a lot of dreaming that happened. It was a, it was an amazing time. But how could the ad tie into the whole you will ethos of bringing amazing new things into people's lives thanks to technology? Sending people to some corporate landing page that encouraged you to sign up for long-distance service seemed to be missing the point. So the entire team hit upon the idea that the AT&T banner would help show people the amazing things that the web was making possible. If a user clicked on the ad, they would not be taken to an AT&T sales pitch, but instead to virtual art museums around the world. Otto Timmons. The three of us sat down and we, we kind of said, what are we doing? You know, who, who are the, the users on the Internet? Who are the customers? What are the customers of Hotwired going to be? You know, who do we think they are? Um, what, what speed are these people going to be coming in at? What's the culture? So, you know, I mean, one of the questions is, is it okay to actually sell something? Um, so we took a look at that and we said, you know, these people are used to, you know, not being confronted with, with 
with uh, commercialism and the founding of the, you know, the way that the internet worked was is it was uh, uh, people um, creating software and and then putting it in the public domain. You know, we said we need to 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 do something that is in that spirit. You know, this should be like a a, a corporate sponsorship of a PBS show. Um, you know, where at the beginning it says, it, you know, this is sponsored by, you know, so-and-so co- company, and then that goes away, you know, so it's not so in your face, or like a, a corporate sponsorship of a, of, a, of a cultural event or a museum expedition um, or a muse- museum exhibit, excuse me. Craig Kanarik. So we thought what was awesome about the internet was that the future was actually there right now. It wasn't about, you know, what will be happening. It's about what is happening right now. So we talked about it a lot and we decided that what we would do is we would expose people to all of the great art that was on the internet. So if you clicked on that banner ad, uh, you know, have you ever clicked your mouse right here? You were taken to a landing page where you were, you were given a choice. There was a, a map of the United States or actually there was a, a map of the world with maybe five or six dots on it that represented art museums that had websites. So one of them was the Louvre, and, and, I, and I really, off the top of my head, can't remember what the other ones were, but there were, there were four or five real-world museums that had put parts of their art collection online, and then there was one... Uh, that we linked to that I believe was just purely a virtual museum. It was just digital and didn't have a real building in the real world. Otto Timmons. You know, we were sponsoring a section of the of, of Hotwire called Retina, where there's all sort of interesting cultural things that are going on. And, and we thought, well, what could we do that would be a plus for that section? And uh, I had just... Um, recently read a article about museums that were online in some, I think it was some obscure uh, German magazine. And, um, and I thought, I was surprised actually that the Louvre had a couple of websites already and they, that they had all these, uh, you know, JPEGs and uh, images Joe McCamley. They, there were people at AT&T who felt that the original long-distance network that was created in the 1800s was almost the equivalent of the Internet. It was, it was the first time where massive amounts of people could, could kind of remove time, space and time as a barrier and connect with each other and communicate in real time without a middleman standing between them like a Morse code operator or something like that. And, and they felt that when they launched their first long-distance network that they had an obligation back then that they fulfilled to teach people how to use phones and how to communicate. So they, they, they asked us to try to figure out a way to do the same thing with the Internet. 
the, the reason that we wanted to link to the museums is because A, museums had decent content that we could link to, but B, we wanted to give, we, we were sponsoring kind of the arts section of Hotwired Magazine. I forget what it was called now, but it was, it was focused on the arts. So it made sense to link to museums. And, and we wanted to kind of transport people to places where, you know, they might not otherwise travel at any time in their lives. Bill Clausen. And we thought, this is so good. This is the, this is the perfect recipe that's about to happen because if we can continue this, you will feel and, and make it and, and think of this, which we now understand this banner, this, this basically it's a glorified, huge click. It's a huge button. If we can put something there that is compelling that they click on it and now literally opens up the world to them. They're in retina, which is all about this kind of digital eye candy and, and stuff that, that, that they were putting in from a from a content perspective from the from the writers and the editor of, of that area on Hotwired. What is it that we can do? And and so truth be told, there are a couple of things that are going on here. So we really don't have the content from AT&T that we can serve up and kind of say, here's our message. So that didn't exist yet. We don't have a website. We don't have content that we could promote ourselves. The AT&T banner would link to the websites of the Louvre, the Andy Warhol Museum, the Library of Congress, and as mentioned, even a completely online museum in Scandinavia. The constraints of the technology of the time the lack of previous examples to draw from, and the mandates from the client had forced the team to get creative. But they had succeeded, except there was one more wrinkle that seemed like it might scupper the entire effort. In the end, though, it merely served to nudge the team in what turned out to be the right direction. Joe McCamley tells the story. So we had been... Um working all weekend through Monday and Tuesday. And I think it, my memory is a little bit foggy sometimes, but it was either on Tuesday night or Wednesday night. And I think the the assets for the banner had to be too hot wired by either Wednesday or Thursday. So it was the night before the assets had to be turned in. Um, we had a, it was about 10 o'clock at night and we had a brief thunderstorm and we were in Westport, Connecticut at the time and Westport back then 20 years ago, most of the electrical wires were, above ground. So if a branch hit a wire, oftentimes power would be, would be knocked out to half the town, even in a, a minor storm. So this happened. We had a storm, branch falls, power goes out, all the computers at Tangent where we were working uh, shut down. And uh, Craig, Craig sort of went ballistic, not quite ballistic, but he was very, very upset. And I, I can remember at the time thinking he was unreasonably upset. Um, and so I said, guy, you know, chill out. It's okay. The power will come back on. We'll get back to work. And he said, no, you don't understand. I never saved anything. And I, and I said, you're a graduate of the MIT Media Lab. We've been working for four days straight and you never hit control save once. <laughs> and so it was just unbelievable at the time but but within a few seconds he he settled down you know he hunkered down got back to work and and within a, a few hours because we we had already thought out a lot of the concepts he just rebuilt everything from scratch and um but but there was an unintended consequence that came out of that looking back now um we we 
he got back to work and he, he figured out how to rebuild everything around the landing page experience. So the connection with the, the, all the tours of all the museums. And the last thing he, what he left for last was the banner. And we didn't have time to rebuild the banner in the way we originally conceived it. And I can't remember what the original conception was, but that's why we kind of landed upon something very simple like, have you ever clicked your banner right here? And, and the unintended consequence of that storm and, and where we were really lucky was a few months later when we were doing A-B testing at Moto Media, we learned that if you put the words click here on a banner, sometimes you could increase the click-through rate 50%. Craig Kanerick. It was very interesting. You know, one thing you'll notice about it is that there's no actual AT&T ad, uh, no AT&T logo in the ad. That was, you know, due to AT&T kind of being uncomfortable with, uh, you know, exactly what was happening. They weren't fully convinced that this was such a great idea. And that the last minute AT&T said, you know, maybe we should actually find out who these people are. So let's put a survey up on the site as well and ask them a little bit about their long distance or, you know, something to that effect. By all accounts, the ads seem to work beautifully for AT&T, the other brands, for Hotwired, everyone. Instead of revolting, the users seem to embrace the ads and they wound up generating response numbers and behavior numbers from web users that marketers today would salivate over. Joe McCambly. You know, you, you, we did little research at the time, but, but the research we did with consumers, you would see that, you know, they were just clicking all over the page to figure out what was clickable because, you know, now we all know, you know, what a hyperlink is. Now we all know what a button should look like. And, and, and now we all know what the standard conventions are. But at the time, they hadn't really been invented. So, you know, people clicked on anything just to see what might lead them somewhere. And then there were also a lot of websites that hid Easter eggs that you know, wanted you to click on anything to find stuff. So, yeah, that was the behavior at the time. People would, would click on anything practically. Otto Timmons. People didn't know that it was an ad. You know, have you ever clicked your mouse right here? You will. You know, they might, maybe they recognized the, the you will typography, maybe not. Banner ads had, had been on the Prodigy service. You know, but they were at the bottom, and they were big and ugly, and uh, no, there was nothing like this, nothing at all. So, so we probably got a lot of click-throughs just from people who were curious. Craig Hanrick. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but you know, it was it was a ridiculously high number. I don't know if it was fifty percent click-through or whatever it was. It was uh, a, a a huge amount. I mean, it sounds really impressive, but, you know, you have to remember that no one was exposed to ads at the time. So it wasn't clear that people understood that that was going to take them somewhere that maybe they didn't want to go. I mean, look, I would like to think it's because I, I designed something incredibly beautiful and that our copywriting was so amazingly compelling. Um, but, I, you know, I think the truth is that it was also a time when people were not sort of a nerd to ads and, and, you know, angry about them. Otto Timmons. Every, so in the, in the beginning, every week I spoke with uh, Brian Bellendorf over at Hotwired. He was the Hotwired webmaster. Um, you know, he was doing that full time while starting organic online upstairs full time. But in, I would ask him, so how's our ad doing? And he was like, yep, it's, Still number one, and uh, 
Um, so, you know, and that became that I talked to him every month and, and, you know, he would just, you know, he would take a look when I call him and he just let me know that, you know, the ad was doing, that it was basically the number one ad, you know, the entire time it was running up there for, I think it ran for a little bit over 10 months. Joe McCamley. In the, right in the aftermath when, the, when Hotwired first launched, and, and I don't think this banner the AT&T banner is unique. I think a lot of the banners on Hotwire got extraordinary click-through rates. But for about the first couple of weeks, it was it bordered between the, the high 70s and low 80s for about two to three weeks. Um, it settled in for about a two to two and a half month period in the 40s, around 44% is what Bill told me. And then it slowly declined over time. The client from AT&T, Bill Clausen. And so the, the information we're getting back is, the people that are going to it love it. They love it. And then we're hearing that we're getting like outrageous, you know, again, we don't know what to, to measure it against, but it was, it was almost like for, for every two people going to it, you know, a person's looking at it, you know, they're actually clicking on it. So we're getting, you know, like 40, 44% click through rate. People are taking the time to actually click through it. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hotwired's ad sales guru, Rick Boyce. Yeah, they were they were high, and and um, I do remember some of the uh, some of the reports. I think that we saw click through rates as high as fifty percent, maybe even a little bit higher than that. Um, but certainly, um, you know, twenty to fifty percent was was the the range at launch, and um, and one of the reasons why I, I think I think quite literally there were a lot of business people um, who were thinking about their own. Uh, internet supported business um, looking at our site. So if you think back, I mean, we launched with advertising 10 months before Yahoo uh, did. We launched with advertising seven months before Excite and Lycos and some of the other big search guys. And so there were a lot of businesses that were publishing on the web or in those instances, um, you know, bring those search technologies to the web that hadn't yet explored um, advertising and, and hadn't really thought through um, advertising as, um, as an opportunity. And I think we became a great place for others, whether it was you know, entrepreneurs, VCs, um, business owners, and whatnot, to go and just kind of get, get some experience with, with internet advertising and what it could look like and, and how it might work. So um, I think certainly there was some consumer interest in those campaigns, but my guess is most of it was, was business people who were exploring to um, help them further develop their own, their own business plans. Hotwired CEO Andrew Anker. I was reading a, a thread on Quora where people were sort of saying things like it was 78%. And, and quite, quite honestly, I don't remember. And I don't think those people remember either. Um, they were ridiculously high. Um, the first couple of weeks, people clicked on everything. Um, this was really not just the first advertising on the Internet, but it was the first real proprietary media created content. 
Um, you know, so it, it, it was it was something that people were clicking on every single page and ads were just as interesting content as our content. And I would say for the rest of 2000, sorry, sorry 1994 and, and well into 1995, um, if, if someone's click through rates fell below 2%, you know, we knew the banner wasn't a good banner and that we had to we had to help them to make it better. Hotwired's launch sent reverberations around several different industries. First, the website itself proved that a professionally produced content site was possible. Hotwired would serve as inspiration and impetus for other sites that would soon follow, CNET, Salon, and Time Inc.'s Pathfinder.com. Also important, Hotwired showed that advertising could be a viable business model for websites and web services of all types. Rick Boyce. Lycos and Excite, I think, launched in with advertising, probably InfoSeq 2, in the spring-summer of 1995. So I would say by spring-summer of 95, advertising was starting to take off. Netscape IPO hit in August of that year. Uh, Yahoo started selling advertising, I think, in November of 1995. So within a year of Hotwired's launch, to me, um, it was starting to feel very, very real. And just as crucially, for the first time, Major brands began looking seriously at the web and at digital advertising in general as a completely new channel to begin funneling their advertising budgets into. Again, Rick Boyce. I think it was an incredible success for the brands and and you know, certainly the PR was, was huge. And, you know, we, we got a lot of coverage as a company. The, um, the brands got a, little, uh, a lot of coverage as well. They were typically mentioned. With the perspective from one of those brands, AT&T's Bill Clausen. It was perfect. It was perfect. It reinforced our brand. It reinforced you will. It reinforced that we, you know, we care about you, that we we're, we're closer to the customer. We know what you're trying to do. You're trying to reach out and, and get there. We got you there. And again, Rick Boyce. But we did a lot of other things first as well. And one of them was the first brand effectiveness study. And that we, we revealed um, the results of that study in actually December of 1995. So that was within um, you know, a year or so of, of uh, our launch, uh, I guess 14 months. Um, we were showing the, um, the world that Internet advertising worked to, um, to drive brand awareness and to, um, to um, you know, change people's minds um, about brands and brand perception. Indeed, it wasn't just in the areas of media and advertising that the hot-wired experiment blazed a trail. As mentioned previously, a little-known story is that the initiative that would eventually lead to the Apache web server, the ubiquitous technology that powers most of the web today, had its roots in Hotwired's launch. Here's Organic's Jonathan Nelson. The original Apache web server was used to sit underneath my desk, and the reason why we developed it was quite simple. The first hack that we did, and keep in mind that the CERN soft, software, which was really the server that we used, was, op was open source. You mm -hmm. could grab the source code for it. Mm -hmm. And most people, most companies that had a little bit more money than we did, they would essentially run one web server per site. 
And so if you had Volvo and Club Med and AT&T and MCI, which we were all hosting at the same time, uh, we didn't have enough money to have six different servers for six different sites. So we hacked the original CERN source code so that we could host multiple websites on a single box, on a single PC. And that we became sort of famous for that hack and people were asking us for copies of it. And then we said, fine, we'll put our patch uh, to the CERN web server, hence the joke, Apache server. Mm. Um, we'll put that up in the public domain and it'll be sort of like a, a, a grab box, right? If you want to grab our hack and you develop another hack, put it up there. And if we like it, we'll incorporate it into the now amended source code from CERN. And that's how the Apache server developed. And Brian Ballendorf and Cliff Skolnick, who were two of my four partners in organic, those guys really went off to develop the Apache server. And, uh, you know, now it's got what 60, 70% of the internet is, or internet server market is dominated by the Apache server. And while it's generally well known that the first web ads were pioneered by the Hotwired team, it actually turns out that work done at Hotwired a few years later can also possibly lay claim to being the first mobile ad. Here's Rick Boyce. In uh, 1998, we put the first ad ever on a mobile device, and that was on the Palm Pilot 5. And you might remember the Palm Pilots would sync to your computer, um, and you'd push a little button, and it would sync the content um, of certain uh, uh, Palm uh, deployable content with with your Palm Pilot itself. And so we put the first ad on a mobile device. That was in 1998, and that was for Hilton Hotels. And, and, and um, that was Hotwired did that, or was that Hotbot, or it was definitely yeah, Hotwired. Wired, it was Wired News. Okay, so it was Wired News on the uh, on the Palm Pilot. So that was pretty cool. 20 years on, the men who brought the internet the first banner ad generally look back on their work with pride, if sometimes a bit sheepishly. Otto Timmons. You get the normal, so you, you did that? Thanks a lot. <laughs> Here's Rick Boyce. Yeah, I do. I do look back at it with with pride and and really with with gratitude. And and you know, I'm just really happy I could be a part of it. And literally, you know, the best job you know I've ever had. Craig Canerick. Uh, I, I still sometimes chuckle when I see a URL at the end of television commercials, because um, I still remember trying to explain to people what a URL was. Joe McCamley. Out of that first banner, and I'm I'm proud of the the results it generated, and I and I think after that banner, there were many many good experiences that were created after that. Um, but but I I think that when I look at the banner today, it's representative of the dark ages of advertising. You know, this is the year 1300 in advertising. If if the banner is the best we could do, but I I, I feel great hope. I think that um, just like with the original dark ages, it's going to be followed by a renaissance. Bill Clausen. The infancy, the banner ad as kind of our um, internet prehistoric writing on the wall was hugely important. From uh, where we are today, 20 years later, I, I have to say I, I'm a little bit disappointed in the um, in the lack of understanding how to better utilize advertising and marketing. Uh, at least for the most part, I, I don't see the um, 
what we believed anyway. Uh, you know, that week that we built that first banner ad, I think everyone involved there felt that we were making a huge shift, a huge front forward first step. Uh, for us, it was like walking on the moon to make this ad because it didn't feel like an ad. That's the most important thing. It did not feel like an ad to us. Uh, I'd say overall, 20 years later, I think it's time for the next, I think it's time for the next uh, evolution or revolution in, in what advertising and marketing needs to be on the Internet. Otto Timmons. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm enormously proud of it. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things we tried to do is we tried to to show the rest of the industry, you know, that this is how you can do it. Uh, you know, that you don't have to sell something that, um, you know, it, or it might in fact be better to not sell something and just do sort of image advertising. Um, and that would be a good way to, um, to, um, not piss people off, I guess, you know, and unfortunately that didn't, you know, it, it nobody, looked and did that. So I think that's a little bit sad that they didn't follow our example. And finally, Joe McCambly. You know, I, I did this uh, about a year ago. I went back and looked at all the assets I could find around that banner and I compared it to what else was on Hotwired. And I was trying to figure out, you know, what made that banner so successful? You know, it, it just seems unreasonable when you look at how ugly it is. But when I kind of, kind of reconstructed, event, re, reconstructed events that night, I realized that, that the banner, as ugly as we might look at it now, was probably one of the nicest elements on the page back then. And it stood out as, as elegant design compared to the rest of Hotwired. And it was very appealing for that reason. And, and because it served a useful purpose for people um, and helped them and kind of helped transport them through space and time to a place where they might not otherwise go, they loved it. And, and for me, from a, a lesson learned standpoint, I learned the value of being useful and helpful over just kind of trying to sell people. Um, when I when I look at the legacy, as important as it is, I hope that's not the most important thing that ever is associated with me. Um, I, I hope that uh, when I die or when my career is over, that there's at least one thing that I can look back on and say, all right, I, as good as that night was and as good as that banner was, I, I topped it. Um, and that's the pursuit now, really. It's kind of been a kind of a career-long pursuit to, to as, like I said, as, as important and valuable as that banner was, I think, to, um, to not let it be my only legacy. I guess there's ambivalence. If this is your first time listening to the Internet History Podcast, you're in luck. There's plenty more where that came from. So subscribe to our podcast on your podcast app of choice or on iTunes, or SoundCloud, or whatever. New episodes are out every Monday, some are interviews, and some are pure history chapters written by me. If you're a longtime listener to the podcast, then you know what to do. Just rate us on iTunes, as always. But also, maybe tell a friend about this episode in particular, or tweet about it, or post it to Facebook. I think this is a, a really good entry episode for new listeners. As always, thanks for listening. around. 
You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.